0: don't we we want to celebrate him today we thank you so much for being here. please take a seat and uh, because of that truth because of who he is and how great he is we are driven to let others know about him we want others to come to know him we're driven by that truth and the truth that we heard last week from pastor Luke as he talked about the reality of hell and uh, that those truths drive us like they drove Jesus we know that Jesus, from the beginning of his life to the end, he was constantly focused on the purpose he was given. You know, John 3, 17 tells us, God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That was what he was focused on, reaching the lost. In fact, at one point, he was challenged by the Pharisees about the way he was living his life, and he answered them with three parables that point to the purpose that he had been given. So that's in Luke 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Luke 15, we'll start looking at verse one. That says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they begin to celebrate. So he tells these stories. You guys want to say, hey, I'm hanging around the wrong people? Now, let me tell you these stories. This is what I'm focused on. All in response to this accusation that this man, this man receives sinners and eats with him. Actually, in that time, those were some pretty serious charges. I mean, Jesus was hanging around with tax collectors. We know they were despised people. They, they were traitors to their country. They had sold out to Rome. They had bought their position so that they could be, make money for themselves, greedy, self-centered. They were considered despicable people by most people. They're despised by their people. And these are the guys that wanted to be near Jesus as well as this group that the Pharisees call sinners. They're not exactly using that phrase, that word like we use it. You know, we use sort of generically the fact that we're all sinners. They're using it for a particular class of people who were considered especially immoral, sometimes because of what they did for a living, people that no respectable Jew would have anything to do with. That's who Jesus is spending time with. And the Pharisees make the assumption that if Jesus wants to spend time with these people, he must be one of them. He must be like them. So here's a crowd that was considered lowlifes. They're all gathered around Jesus, listening to him, and the Pharisees are griping about it. But what really bothered them was that some of these people were actually inviting Jesus home to dinner and he was accepting the invitation. And so in complete horror, these Pharisees and scribes are saying, this man, this this man, they, they have such contempt for him, they can't even say his name. This man eats, receives sinners and eats with them. I gotta tell you, that's actually a great statement, isn't it? I mean, pretty ironic. I'm not sure there's a more accurate statement about Jesus than this one made by the Pharisees. They had no idea of the truth of their statement. Jesus receives sinners. Aren't you glad that's true? I mean, think about how that truth has impacted you if you're a Christian. Everything boils down to that truth. You want to know about Jesus? This is it. We know what he was about, and this is it. Amazingly, he wanted us. Blows us away. And it's in response to that accusation that Jesus tells these stories: the lost sheep. The guy's got hundred sheep. One of them wanders. You think, ah, you got ninety-nine more. You're okay. One of them he wanders away because that's what sheep do. That's why they need a shepherd. One away, and the guy g- goes after the sheep. He searches for the sheep. That sheep ends up in, could end up in situations where it's completely helpless. It has no defense. That's the picture Jesus gives of us. That's the way we were. In fact, we can go back all the way to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 53, 6, where we're told all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us. We've wandered off. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That was us. Before we came to Christ, we were living for the moment. We didn't intend to be lost. We didn't intend to waste our lives. We didn't intend to wander off. But little by little, concentrating on only the moment, we find ourselves in the wilderness in danger, our life's empty, our heart wasn't free. It was heavy with the guilt of our sin and we weren't sure how it happened. So the whole sheep thing typifies us, headed for destruction, unaware of the danger that we're in. That's the story Jesus tells. And he turns to those listening, he says, what man among you? You know, you know, hey, any good shepherd would would do this for his sheep. They all know that. I mean, even if he's got a hundred, he could easily think, yeah, hey, I've got these 99 left, but he goes after the one. And so the search begins. He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. Jesus is painting this a picture of himself that he wouldn't quit on the search. He's so, we're so greatly loved by Christ that he didn't quit till he reached us. No matter how many others he had. He was going to reach us. Jesus went next to the story of the lost coin. Lady lost a coin. We'd think nothing of that, right? I mean, we lose coins all the time. We got piles of them on our dresser or in the car or wherever. We got coins everywhere. We walk over coins other people have lost. We don't bother to stop and pick them up. We would think nothing. But if if all you had, if your life savings was 10 coins... And then you lose one. Uh, this is, it's a little bit more sense of urgency here, and it's a, sort of catastrophic. You'd think this situation especially is a little bit more intense because now we're not talking about one out of a hundred. We're talking about one out of ten. One writer puts it this way, a little different light. He said, in Palestine, the mark of a married woman was a headdress made of tin coins linked together by a chain. For years, maybe, a girl would scrape and save to amass her tin coins, for the headdress was almost equivalent to her wedding ring. When she had it, it was so inalienably hers that it could not even be taken from her for debt. It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman in the parable lost. And she searched for it as any woman would search if she had lost her marriage ring, I mean, imagine losing the ring, your marriage ring. If, and in a sense, it doesn't matter which way you're talking about here. It could be we're talking about this this ring that was set aside for marriage. It could be that it's just, she's just a very poor lady, and this is all she's got. Either way, this is a huge loss. Think about the coin for just a second, though. Unlike the sheep it doesn't have the potential to recognize the fact that it was lost, does it? It's just a coin, it's an inanimate object. It's not in danger, nothing bad's going to happen to it, it's just lost. It's not gonna get frightened because it's lost, it's just unable to help itself. Which just shows us another angle on our being lost that Jesus wanted to get across. Because in this story, we're the coin. We're the inanimate object. Spiritually, we're just laying there, unable to move, incapable of doing anything about it. He's stressing the fact that our salvation is not our initiative. While Jesus saw value in us, there was nothing we did to get that value. We're we're incapable of doing anything. He had to find us, or else we wouldn't be found. We had no chance. It's his initiative, completely. It's interesting, with the lost sheep, Jesus gave first a a picture that's familiar to us, the shepherd. You know, we tend to think about this sort of picturesque scene. We've seen paintings. There's a shepherd with his staff in his hand, the sheep over his shoulders. He's in a green pasture. There's a brook running next to him. And we get that. We've heard sermons about it. We, We get that picture. And later, when he tells the story of the lost son, we get the picture of the father, we get that. We, we've heard those sermons, we've listened to it, we've read books about it, we, got, we get that picture. But what about this picture? I mean, the imagery is completely different. We see other imagery in scripture of a Jesus, like a rock, a lion, a light. Well, here's one that's just really different, not so picturesque. Jesus uses the imagery of himself as a peasant Housewife. Why would he do that? What's the reason for that? If there's a reason for him being showing himself as a shepherd, and there's a reason he shows himself as a father, there must be a reason the image of a peasant housewife is used. So why is that? I think maybe it's because peasant housewife had so little. She didn't have wealth. She didn't have position. She wasn't thought highly of. Things are all true about Jesus. It's obvious just how desperate she would have been to find the coin. The links she took. How how fine the coin would consume her. It, it tells us something of how Jesus would go to search for us. She searched, we're told, carefully, diligently, every nook and cranny. Homes of the poor didn't typically have windows in them. If they did, they were very small. And so she lights a lamp, and she begins to sweep. Their floors were typically dirt floors. There's sometimes layer them with straws just to soften them. And so finding this coin is literally like finding a needle in a haystack. And she's sweeping away, and the dust is flying, trying to find the coin, and she finds it. And in the same way the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't have expected a woman to be the hero of the story, they wouldn't have expected Jesus to be the Savior of men. And he doesn't just save us. It's not like we find a coin in the parking lot. No, he cherishes us like a lady does her engagement ring. We're his greatest treasure, but it took his search, his initiative, going after us. And then finally, Jesus told about the lost son. This is different. Different than the sheep, which were ignorant. Different than the coin, which was unable. The lost son is rebellious. His lostness is based on his rebellion. So, this gives us another angle of what it means for us to be lost, what causes us to be. Some of us are lost because we're like the sheep and we just wandered away and we're just unaware. Some of us, it's, it's our inability, li- literally actually all of us, we're completely unable to respond to God on our own. And then some of us are lost because of rebellion, a deliberate turning from God. This guy's convinced that somehow his parents are holding him back from having a good time in life. So he, he, he wants to leave. He wants his freedom. He thought his freedom would actually be better than what he was experiencing at home. So he gives us the command, give me my share. I want mine. Legally, a, as a younger son, he was allowed to a third of the estate, but he wasn't allowed to get that until the father died. So he's making a command, just self-centered. I want my part now. And the father gives it to him. Gets what he wants his and he heads to a distant country as far as he could get. He finally gets there and everything's good at first, but he spends everything he has He's thinking this, is, this was great up until this point because he's got freedom. He's got uh, uh, his, own, he's his own authority. He has the, he's in charge of his life. There are no rules. There are no regulations. But he spends everything he has. And then on top of that, there's a famine that hits the land. And now he's in trouble because he has no resources. He has nothing to fall back on. And he ends up feeding pigs. Moving up the ladder, right? <laughs> now, Terrible situation, especially for a Jewish man. This is how, this isn't how he pictured his life going. You know, he thought he'd have a good job and good food, lived high life. Now all the glitter's gone. He's not just feeding pigs. He's so hungry he wants to eat with them. He's at the lowest point possible. This is where we're at, not physically, but spiritually. Spiritually, we were eating with pigs. All caused by our own rebellion. But then the story takes a different turn from the sheep and the coin. You know, with the sheep, the shepherd goes on a search, leaves the 99. With the coin, the woman goes on a search, sweeping, searching. A big deal is made in those stories about the search. And you would think the search might be even more intense here. I mean, we've gone from one in 99 to one in 10. Now we're at one in two. And, And we're not just talking about sheep or coins, as important as those may have been. This is a son. A lost son. But there's no search. Why is that? See, the father isn't going to go rescue his son against the son's will. So he let him go until he discovers himself that the world's not this great, wonderful place that he thought it would be. The answer for the lost son is completely different. We're told he came to his senses. <clears throat> He literally came to himself. He began to reflect on all that had happened, where he had come from. He thought about the circumstances back home. He thought about where he was at now, and he's looking and going, wow, it would have been much better back home. And I was wrong. But people have to come to that point, don't they, where they realize just how wrong they've been. being lost is not something we can make excuses for. We're guilty. We're rebels. So again, we see facets of our salvation in these stories. God's search for us in those first two is completely his initiative. But like the lost son, we come to our senses. In the circumstances, we find ourselves due to our own rebellion causes us to go home. It shows us both sides of the old argument. You know, some people want to stress that our salvation is solely on the so- based on the sovereignty of God. And some people want to stress, well, it's the decision that we make. Jesus clearly shows us both sides of these stories, the choice in seeking by Jesus, that our salvation is his initiative. And the choice we make, that at some point we come to our senses to go home and to enjoy the blessings of being at home. In all these stories, there's one part we haven't talked about. In all of them, there's a celebration. When the sheep was found, it's placed on the shepherd's shoulders. He comes home rejoicing, we're told. And then what does he do? He throws a party. Throws a party. I mean, normally you wouldn't expect friends and neighbors to celebrate the recovery of a sheep. What is exactly the point? Most people wouldn't think that was something we're celebrating. But the shepherd did. And they celebrated. Just like there was a celebration in heaven when you and I came to Christ. It's rejoicing. We talk about value in God's eyes. This is what makes heaven celebrate. Celebrate. God sees value in lost men and women. They are not worthless in his sight. They are not written off or neglected. They are of unspeakable value to God. And think about the expense for the shepherd. I mean, he's throwing a party. You know, there's money involved here for him to celebrate this. There's a big cost. There's a big cost paid for all of us. The point is, Jesus was willing to pay the price for you. And when he found you, the celebration began in heaven. Think about the coin. The housewife finds the coin. Finds the coin. She feels good. So her first thought is to call her friends and neighbors and to celebrate. And we're told just like they celebrated. There's, and we're told that as, just as they celebrated, there's joy in the presence of the angels when people come to him. And people think, well, that's the angels celebrating. And that may be true. They may be celebrating too. But that's not completely what's going on here. The main point is this. What Jesus is saying here is that he, Jesus, who lives in the presence of the angels and seeks sinners, rejoices over even one of them who repents or is converted. He's the one throwing the party. He's celebrating. Must have been some kind of celebration in heaven the day he found you. And then there was a celebration for the son. It's obvious that while the father wasn't searching, he never lost interest in his son. I mean, Think about the reactions when his son got home. There's not the slightest hint of a lecture or ridicule. There's no guilt trip. There's no talk of the pain that he had caused or the the debt that he owed. There's only joy that the son has returned home. I don't know, I, I sort of picture this happening at sunset, and the sun coming over the crest of a hill, and he's sort of silhouetted there against the sky, and the father's been watching like he's been watching day after day after day, and he sees this figure coming over that hill, and, he, and he's looking at it, and there's something familiar about it, but he's not sure. Maybe it's the, the way he's walking. It looks like, looks like his son, but, and, uh, you know, this this, this this guy is coming my way. He, he's all dirty, and he's rags, and he's skin and bones. This can't be my son. And then he, he, realized, he realized, wait, he's, he's getting a little bit. That is my son. And what's he do? He runs. They weren't supposed to do that in the culture, but he runs. He runs, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him home. Just like he welcomed us the day we came to our senses, and he ran, Jesus running to greet you, to welcome you into the family. And he says, bring the best robe, not just any robe. Bring, bring the best robe, because that's a sign of your nobleness. Put a ring on his finger, that's a sign of his authority. Bring sandals for his feet, because he's, no he's not a slave, he's a son. The son's like... Father, I've sinned against you, and, and, and he planned on saying that. He also planned on saying, hey, just make me a slave. The father doesn't even let him get that out. No. It's like, you are my son. We're going to celebrate. Bring the fattened calf and celebrate the fact that you're home. I read these stories and think, you know, there's two basic responses to them. There's gratitude. Just be thankful for how much He loved us, how that love caused Jesus to care so much for us, to search us out, to save us, and to celebrate with us. And then the natural reaction, I think, is for us to, since we are followers of Christ, to want to be like Jesus and what He was all about. I mean, if He cared so much for the lost, if He still cares so much for the lost, shouldn't we? If He was completely focused on the lost and we are His followers, shouldn't we? Jesus was not only completely focused on the loss during his life here on earth, but before he left, he passed on that responsibility to us. What we know is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You go search them out. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, his job, his focus, became our job. Our top priority should be to join Jesus in what he's doing in reaching the lost. If Jesus lived for this, and if he gave this command to us to do the same, why do we fail at it so often? Is it because we just got... Too busy with life, and too many other things. Just living life. Is it because we, you know, we don't want to be weird? (laughs) We don't want to look like we're, we've sort of some kind of fanatic. Is it because we don't feel like we know enough? Don't want to open that door? Let me throw out some things to make it easier for us, okay? These aren't original with me, but let me just throw them out. And they're based loosely on some stories in the Bible, but we'll start with the easiest and we'll move up, okay? The easiest thing, live a life that people will want. You want to have an impact on the lost? Live a life that people will want. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Philippi remember and they're singing and everything and and then an earthquake comes and the chains fall off and the doors are open and the philippian jailer who we're not told that paul or silas ever spoke directly to him about christianity or thing he but this guy wakes up and he's ready to kill himself because he thinks that He's going to die anyway because he's, the prisoners are all gone. And then Paul yells out, hey, don't do harm to yourself. We're all still here. And how did the guy respond? Without Paul or Silas coming and, you know, directly sharing the gospel with him, which I don't, they may have done, but, but we're not told that, they're just living their life as believers. They're letting it be known that they're Christians, But without saying a word to him, this guy comes to them and says, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? They're just living their life as Christians, and this guy is attracted to that, and he asks the question, so what would happen if we just lived lives that were attractive to people? Where we're a good neighbor, and we live with joy, and we're content with what we have, and we're kind to people. Living a life that's desirable. And you can do that pretty passively without saying a whole lot. You just got to let people know you're a believer. Because we don't want them thinking, oh, what a great guy Joe is. And that's all they, they get from our lives. We want them to think, what a great guy Joe is. And the reason he's that way is because he says he's a Christian. So live life that's desirable and let people know. Again, you don't have to say a ton. Let them know that you're a follower of Christ. Let me give you a couple of quick, easy ways. These and let me point out this is not just about advertising our church. It's about advertising the fact that you're a follower of Christ. But just a couple ways. You can think of a hundred. You can grab one of our yard signs from our church, they're at the doors. As you're on your way out, grab one of those yard signs, stick it in your yard. Grab a window decal for your car. They're they're at the information center. Grab one of those, stick it on your car. Why? So that when people are, you're being the good person you want to be, and you're living a life that's desirable for other people, then they're going, oh yeah, the reason they're that way is because they go to grace. They say they're Christians. And it intrigues people and they want to know more. The easiest thing you can do as a believer is live a life that is attractive to other people and let them know the reason that is, is because you're a father of Christ. Don't have to be real bold. You don't have to know a lot. You just got to let them know that's the, the, the basics. I'm a father of Christ. That's what's changed my life. Second step. Invite. Invite them to come and see. You remember in John the Baptist in John 1, he's, he's introducing Jesus. And uh, uh, Jesus then invited Andrew to come and see where he was staying. And then Andrew invited his brother Peter to come and see Jesus. And then Jesus invited Philip to follow him. And then Philip invited Nathaniel to come and see. There's a whole lot of inviting going on. It's a great way to start to reach someone. Invite. Invite them at least. Take advantage of opportunities to invite them to church even. So, that's why we're doing what we're doing next week. We're doing a series, starting a series, family hacks. It's all about how to, you know, improve things at home. Everybody's interested in that, so it's a felt-need sort of thing, and it gives us an opportunity. We're going to be doing a mailing like we do sometimes. It's going to go out all over the place, and there's invite cards out there in the atrium all over the place out there that you can grab to invite someone to come. Invite. Ask, just invite them. It's not a big deal. It's no big pressure. Just invite them. Hey, we're doing this series at church next, starting this Sunday. Just wanted you to be aware of it and thought maybe you'd find it interesting. Invite them to come. That's why we do things like Beast Feast. Let me tell you about Beast Feast, okay? Just a couple of minutes. Beast Feast is a men's event. Coming up October 9th. You can get signed up for it. We've got limited space. So you want to get signed up. But Beast Feast is all about the intention of Beast Feast. It's not so, because we're going to have a bunch of good meat and we're going to have a good time. That's, that'll happen, we hope. Um, but it's the, the, the point of Beast Feast is for you to invite someone. Don't invite your friend who's already a believer that's not our goal. Don't invite your friend who's already going to another Bible-believing church. That's not our goal. Invite your friend who doesn't know Christ so that they can come and hopefully have a good time and enjoy it and think, oh, there's some people that I won't mind hanging out with a little bit more. There's some, maybe I can try to come to church. See, there's reasons we design the night like we do. There's reasons why we, when we give out the door prizes, why they're door prizes and it's not a raffle. Because we want guys who come in who aren't part of the church to th- not, we don't want them to think we're trying to raise money. We're not. We're going to lose money. We always do. We won't lose money to reach men. We want them to come in and get the door prizes and get them for free. So they, they don't think, oh, this is a church and all they care about is my money. We don't. We want them. There's a, there's a reason why it only costs $5 to come. Because again, we don't want guys thinking we're doing this and making money somehow. We're, we aren't. Invite someone, to, and don't, when you sign up, don't just sign up 10 spaces because it's cheap and you hope maybe to fill, because that's taking up spaces. We don't have room for everybody. It's, it's, we always are full in there. Invite guys, sign up guys that you know don't know Christ and sign them up by name so we're ready to go. It's a, it's a great opportunity. It's, help, it's our goal to help you do what God has left for you to do, reach lost people around you that's what next week's about invite people to come next why it's our objective to help you do what god has called you to do reach lost people invite third step third thing that you can do is to share your story step it up a little bit more you invite somebody to come and you offer say hey I'll You know what? I'll meet you at the door so you don't have to feel like you got to wander around, feel like you're lost. I'll meet you at the door. I'll sit with you if you'd like. Hey, we can go out to eat afterwards. I'm I'm buying. And maybe, just maybe, that'll give you the opportunity to share your story. You want to have an impact on the lost around you? Share your story. Your story doesn't have to be a big deal. Remember the man born blind in John 9? And Jesus healed him so he could see. And the Pharisees came and they're asking sort of theological questions, trying to drill the guy. And, and the guy's like, I don't know. I don't know about that stuff. All I know, all I know is I was blind and now I see. That's my story. You don't have to have, know, know a whole lot of theology. Tell your story. This is where I was at before I came to Jesus. This is how I came to Jesus. And this is what life's been since I came to Jesus. That's my story. Tell your story. Some of you have got very dramatic stories about what happened, how your life changed. Some of you, it's not so dramatic. It doesn't matter. Tell your story. The point of the story is not really about you. It's about Jesus. Tell your story. And then you can step it up even further and actually share the gospel. As great as your story may be, and as interesting as it may be, and it may draw people in, and that's the purpose of it, your story alone won't change a life. It takes the gospel to do that. And when you share the gospel, you want to be loving, but you want to be direct. Be loving, but be direct. Peter in Acts 2 was was preaching that first sermon. In Acts 2, he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Hopefully, at some point, you get to share that truth with somebody that Jesus died and then he rose again, and it was all because of us. Share the gospel with them, do it lovingly but directly because when someone actually takes that step and they come to Christ, there is nothing that can cause greater celebration than someone coming to Christ. There are people out there that you know. They don't know what they need. They've not realized they're lost. Some are lost because they've rebelled purposefully against God. If Jesus was all about reaching them and if he gave us the same responsibility, our hearts should be gripped by the job we've been given and the loss that are around us. We should try to reach them. Wherever you're at in that process, you know, in, the, in those different ways that you can try to impact the loss. You should be doing We should be doing that constantly. Let people know you're a believer. Live in a way that is attractive to people. Invite them. This week, great opportunity. You know next week they're going to hear about family and they're going to hear about Christ. Invite them to come next Sunday. Share your story. Share the gospel. Let's have an impact on the world around us. If you're glad Jesus searched for you, went after you, brought you to himself, welcomed you home and celebrated, let's make sure those around us have that opportunity as well. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for uh, bringing us to yourself and giving us new life for loving us like that. God, there are people around us who need to know you, who need to hear the truth and need to to come to faith. God, help us to, to be your representatives in this world to them. Thank you for new life. Thank you for the joy of serving you. God, I pray that we do that faithfully. We pray, especially this week, God, that we would be, have an impact on those around us. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.